Welcome back to the Messy Reformation. My name's Jason Rice. I'm the lead pastor at Faith Community CRC in Beaverdam, Wisconsin. My co-host is Willie Cronkey. He's a member at Pease CRC in Pease, Minnesota. We're just a couple of guys who love the Christian Reformed Church and want to see Reformation happen in our denomination. But we realize that whenever Reformation happens in the history of the church, things get messy. And after this past synod, things are continually getting messier and messier in the Christian Reformed Church. So we're taking the opportunity to have conversations with pastors throughout the Christian Reformed Church to find out what's going on in our denomination, but also to talk about what Reformation might look like. If you haven't already, take a moment, click subscribe so you don't miss any of our upcoming content. We are dropping episodes every single Sunday evening. We also want to continue to say thanks to everyone who sponsored us on Patreon. We're slowly making our way toward our goal of 20 sponsors at $5 a month. If you appreciate what we're doing and want to help us continue to put out content, head on over to patreon.com slash themessyreformation. You can also support us for free by sharing our content. I'm a terrible self-marketer and need your help. If you know of anyone who would benefit from listening to this content, let them know about the Messy Reformation. With all that said, we're going to get to this week's episode, which is part two of our conversation with Aaron Gonzalez. Yeah, I had I had kind of laughed when we uh, when we first were met because you were on it. Were you on the same praise team as me? No, no, you weren't. Yeah, I thought you were on the other one. Um, when we, we were laughing cause they had asked like, how many of you are first time delegates? And like everybody on the praise team was like, we're first time delegates. And we're like, yep. All the veterans are like, nah, we're not doing that again. Yeah. They learned. And I had kind of regretted it at first, but by the end of the week, I remember thinking, you know what, this was really, really good for me to just get up and like play my guitar and sing and just and practice and then be part of leading worship and and just i don't know you could i don't know I, it was just really good for my soul to do that and so if i go again i probably will sign up again i at the beginning of the week i was like i'm not doing this i've got way too much other stuff to get done and now i'm like no this was it was actually part of keeping me healthy throughout all of all of synod as well you know body mind soul all of that kind of stuff is super important yeah, I, I would agree. That's that's similar to how I would assess it for myself as well. Yeah. What were what were some of the things that surprised you while you were at Synod? Uh, I think I was surprised by how much to me it did not feel like a business meeting, even mm. though that's largely what it was, whether that was in advisory committees or in plenary sessions. Um it was I mean, again, it was energizing for me. I felt like I was hanging out with brothers and sisters in Christ. And I'm I'm not by any stretch of the imagination an introvert. I'm an extrovert. I I get energy from talking with people and, and hanging out with them. I, I love to be with people. And it felt like a week of being with people, whether I was in meetings or whether we were sitting in the cafeteria, you know, or chatting afterwards or whatever. So um it surprised me how, uh, just how enjoyable it was, you know, to mm-hmm. me, though it was this big, massive meeting with such, uh, an emotionally charged issue at the forefront or issues at the forefront. Um, I just, I, I was surprised by how much I enjoyed it. 
Yeah. And I, I, I want to just double down on, on what you just said, because I think we don't talk about it enough that even though there's like, I think we all will admit there's the, there's like a pretty strong division in the church right now in the CRC, right? There's uh, whatever you want to label it, but there's the like pro HSR crowd and the anti HSR crowd or whatever you want to say. And there's a, there's a very stark division there that I think I've been fairly clear on this podcast. I don't think it's healable. I think we need to just move forward. I don't think we need to keep trying to do that. But even though that divide is there and there's some animosity, even when we speak on that issue, like we could still sit down together at lunch and have a really good conversation, right? Like, it's not like that. It's a, you know, it's not like a, a personal hatred of one another, but we have a very significant, strong disagreement on this issue. Uh, but otherwise, we can still be friends, right? Like I remember a number of episodes ago, we talked about that. Like we can, I can say to a number of these people, like, I, I love you like a brother, but I don't think you should be a pastor in the Christian Reformed Church. And like, this isn't a, it's not a personal thing. I, I still love you very much, but I just don't think you can do that here. And I think we have to be able to get to that point of saying that more often, just because people tend to make this very personal, right? I think everything in church in general becomes very personal, right? That's where uh, tensions blow up in local congregations because everything's pretty personal because somebody's great grandpa did this and that. And, and every time you touch something, it's personal, right? But it's the same in a denomination too, especially a smaller denomination like the Christian Reformed Church. Someone's great grandpa helped start this church and that church. And so like when you start talking about like disciplining Neeland Avenue, people are like, well, my, you know, I've got all these relatives there. How in the world could you ever? It's like, this isn't personal. Um, but, but just in reality, there's, there's, a there's a divide here and we just have to recognize that. Yeah. And, and two, we agree on this, even as, and even with what the end result of that might be and still sit and eat together and talk together and all that. And I mean, someone could say that, well, yeah, okay, that's, that sounds great to say, but yeah, sure. But no, that's literally what we did. Right. Yeah. At almost every meal, you're sitting with someone, at least one or more, that you don't agree with. And, and that was my experience, too. And I enjoyed those conversations. I enjoyed conversations with people who we were pretty much in lockstep with each other. It, it was, yeah, I, I loved all of that. And, and that's absolutely right. That's not just like a platitude. That's not just a, a thing to say. It's what we actually did. Everyone did that. Yeah. And I think most of us are probably doing this just in our normal lives. I can, yep. I can name off like a couple of my good friends who I would, who, who disagree with me on the sovereignty of God. Like they're, they're open theists. And I would say like, you cannot be a pastor or a leader in my church. I would never let that happen, but we can go get a beer together. We can go talk. We can get coffee together. We can hang out. I'm going to, I can help watch your kids help you fix your car. Like we're going to live life and do this stuff together, but you're just not going to be a leader in my church. And that's, yep. and I'm still going to call you a good friend who I'm going to call up and talk to about things. Right. And, and I'm going to be here for you. And, and, and so we, we have to get to that point. I think there, there can be this like boogeyman, right. That they keeps getting put on the conservatives. If you want to use that label in the CRC, like we're just kind of hateful, like, legalistic, you know, pharisaic, whatever. And we just can't, 
handle being in communion with people who disagree with us. And it's like, no, we're in communion with these people all the time. We all are, and we're loving them and we're doing this, but, but there's a difference in allowing those people into leadership positions in the church. That's very, very different. Yeah. hundred percent, hundred percent. I don't think any of us live in echo chambers and nor do we want to. No. Yeah. What, what, what would you, what would you, what do you think we need to be doing? You know, now you were at, you were at Synod 2022 and we're kind of looking forward to Synod 2023. Like what would be your, what, what do you think we need to be doing as a denomination kind of in preparation for, for Synod 2023? Well, I mean, I think, I think that 2022 uh, got things moving in the right direction in a definitive way. I don't think that work is done. I think that we need to continue to do that. I think that what we don't need to do is put our hands to the plow and then look back. Uh, I think we need to keep pressing forward and, and frankly, see it for what it is Um, and and like it or not. And, and, you know, I've been challenged on using this terminology, but the fact is this is a fight like it or not. We have a fight on our hands. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's not in a boxing ring. It's a different kind of fight, but it's a fight nonetheless. And we just have to treat it as that and, and go forward and further cement in place what we started to put in place in 2022, anticipating the objections, anticipating the challenges and being wise in our, in our anticipation of those and, and doing what needs to be done to, to get in place at, at whatever level we need to structurally, procedurally, um, you know, personnel wise, those things that are consistent with, with what was decided in 2022, we passed an overture in our classes that speaks to who can serve, who may serve as a delegate to Synod from here on out in, in our classes and who may serve on the COD. Um, we have to start doing those things, anticipating pushback, anticipating, um, refusal to comply, right? Refusal to abide with Synod's decision. We're already seeing that. I don't think we should be surprised by that, but I think we need to be able to go forward in light of that, um, just knowing that this is this is what it is. This is where we are, and we're going to have to be willing to deal with that in ways that will invite accusations of yeah. hatred, of being mean-spirited, of, of whatever, you know, and just refuse to accept those premises because we know the truth. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, Aaron, you're, you're speaking to something that I wanted to ask a little earlier, but I was wondering, you know, because of your experience at Synod and, and what, uh, what we went through there, what did you kind of learn about yourself and the CRC through that process? Because I mean, you're, you're using very, I would say very clear and definitive language, which is good. But I would say that had to come through knowing something and learning things. And I'm just curious what you've come to know about yourself and the denomination. Well, I've definitely learned that um, along with loving my church and loving my classes, I love my denomination as well. And it's worth fighting for. And um, and again, I don't apologize for that word. I've, I've used that before and was got pushback on it, but, but that's what it is. And these things come up, right? There's, there's nothing new under the sun. Uh, there's, there are always challenges to the authority of, of God's word. There are always 
issues of disagreement that don't fall into the area of well you know what in christian in within christian liberty we can agree to disagree on that when those issues are there that's wonderful and we need to be able to deal with them in that way this is not one of those issues um and it's not just i don't just say that because of you know the the presenting issue of the HSR report or, or however we want to cat- uh, characterize that um, human sexuality underneath that is an issue of biblical authority and, and how we're approaching the word of God, um, how we're, how we're going to understand that. Of course, confessions as well are, are a part of that. Um, so I, I, I found that uh, I, I learned that I love my denomination. I, I learned that, and not not in a surprised way, but I learned that it's it's worth fighting for, and I want to fight fight for it. You know, if my if my motivation was to win an argument or to be right, and, and frankly, a younger version of myself that would have been my motivation. I could be the poster child for the cage stage, mm-hmm. um, but that's that's not what this is. Um, it's it's not why I it's not why I'm sitting here saying the things I'm saying. It's not why I would support a particular overtures or anything like that. Um, that's not my motivation. My motivation is the, uh, the purity of Christ's church, the holiness of Christ's church, uh, sound doctrine, right? As a pastor, it matters to me a great deal. What, uh, what our denomination teaches and affirms because that in, in, in certain ways, affects the churches. And, you know, whenever there are things that aren't right as pastors, you can be a hedge against those things to some degree, but you're also dealing with the reality of just the way that these things just kind of become the air we breathe. Right. And, and we don't want bad doctrine, unsound doctrine to become the air we breathe in the CRC. And so it's worth doing what needs to be done to make sure that doesn't happen. Yeah, yeah. I, I think there's a level of kind of John Piper and R.C. Sproul. Uh, they would say that there are times when we need to contend for the faith, not that we're to be contentious in our natures, but we need to be giving defense of and wholeheartedly believing and defending the once and for all faith delivered to the saints. And I think that's kind of what you're highlighting right now. Hundred percent, and and most of what I'm saying is just my own feeble way of saying what Martin Luther said so much better than I ever could. Um, it's a quote I've used on the floor of our classes. Classes. It's a it's a quote I uh, I could see myself using on the floor of synod if I needed to. But um, Luther says, if I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every form of the truth of God, except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking. I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing Christ. He says, wherever the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on all the battlefield besides is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that one point. So the way I see our situation is that we have been presented with whether or not we're going to stand and fight or whether we're going to flinch. And just kind of let things go on and be comfortable. And that's that's kind of what I'm getting at when I mentioned earlier. This is not a time to put our hands to the plow and then look back, you know, and wonder, is this worth it? Do I really want to do this? That that's flinching, you know. And I don't believe Christ is calling his uh his pastors or elders or or any of his people 
to flinch at this moment. And so going forward, whatever that looks like going into Synod 2023, whatever that looks like in our churches and our classes, we're being constantly presented with the option of fighting or the option of flinching. And in every single one of those circumstances, I am intending to fight, not flinch. Amen. Yeah. And I'm, I want to, I want to talk about that a little bit more because uh, I think you're right. I get pushed back. People don't like, most of the people that listen to this podcast every episode keep fighting the good fight in this messy reformation but those who don't appreciate my podcast do not appreciate the 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 fighting language and, and people are like oh we got to stop fighting and and somebody said i've learned that i i don't uh i'm not i don't have i don't want to listen to anybody who uses language of fighting the good fight and i'm like well then stop reading paul because paul used like i'm just quoting paul and Jude talks about contending and the Bible has military metaphors everywhere. Like let get a grip. Um, but it's, it's this, we are in a fight. I mean, and, and you can call it what it is. And people say, well, you shouldn't fight with your brothers and sisters. And it's like, really? Like, did you grow up in a home with brothers and sisters? Like, what do you call it when you're arguing about something, a fight? Like, what do you call it when, you, when you're when you arguing with your wife, right? I mean, okay, I know I'm not the only person who gets in a fight with my wife. I'm not, like, physically fighting her, but we're, we get in a fight. We get in sharp disagreements sometime, and that's a fight. And uh, But all of this kind of connects with that quote by Martin Luther is dynamite, by the way. I don't know if I, I – I remember hearing parts of that, but that was – that was perfect. And, and why I think that is so helpful for us to understand is uh, like, we, we need to picture the, the um, somebody was just reminding me that, that Paul always uses this idea of doctrine being something that's been entrusted to us. We we've been given this deposit and, and now we need to guard the deposit. Once again, military language. And so you picture this deposit that 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 we've been given of faith as a city. And that deposit that city now gets attacked at different points of history at different spots in the wall. And you have to rally your troops to defend that spot in the wall. And uh, and what we keep hearing is like sexuality is the spot of that this city that's being attacked. They they yep. think it's like it's like the weak point is being attacked, and all of the forces are coming at it. Right, like think Lord of the Rings and Helm's Deep, and the orcs are coming at there, or they got the orc running with the big piece of dynamite to down into the the weak spot in the wall, right where the where the water comes out. Um, the the army there didn't say, well. Why we don't have to fight that spot because we're fighting so well on all these other spots. Like, why make this one such a big deal? No, they said, get everybody over to this spot because this is where they're attacking. We have to fight here. We have that's to stand here because this is where the enemy's attacking. That's exactly right. And you know, the red herring that gets that gets thrown out there that I mean, we need to make sure we don't take the bait on this is that idea. Well, why are you so focused on? people's sexuality or why are you so focused on this particular expression of sexuality or that particular expression of sexuality? And it's like, I didn't bring this battle, you know, I, I didn't, I'm just addressing it. I'm responding to the point in the wall that is attempting to be breached, right. Yeah. To stick with your Helm's deep mm-hmm. metaphor. And, and that that's, 
that's the point of the Martin Luther quote, right? It, it's you got a whole battlefield in front of you, but there's this point that is the weak spot right now. It's this point where gains are being made against you. You have to be able to turn and fight at that point and not say, well, hey, we made sure that this spot over here that wasn't being attacked was safe and secure. Well, so what? They came in over here where you weren't even paying attention or where you knew it was happening and you did nothing about it. Yeah. Amen. And, uh, and one of the really interesting things, um, I just, I was just talking to someone, uh, this past weekend, who's, who's a kind of a, uh, an upper level leader in a, in a Christian nonprofit organization, right? It's not, it's not connected to the church or anything. And, and they were, they told me that, that like in order to be a member or a leader in this nonprofit organization, they have to sign a code of conduct, right? And I don't want to get into that debate right now, but, but part of that code of conduct at this nonprofit requires any leader in there to hold, they explicitly says you have to hold to a biblical view of marriage between one man and one woman. And they have to sign that they do not hold that homosexual practice, they like homoprac homosexual practice is sinful. Like in order to be a leader in this nonprofit organization, they have to sign a document that they hold to these things. And, and it's explicit in the document. Why? Because they're just trying to make this sin the worst of all sins. No, because they're, this is the, the point where the fight is coming. And, and it's, it's crazy to me that when we talk about doing those types of things in the Christian Reformed church, people get kind of wound up. And they're like, well, why do we got to make, why do we got to hold our office bearers to this standard all of a sudden? Well, because they're not, I mean, sorry, getting wound up here, but, but <laughs> like if, if, the, if everybody in our, if all of our leaders were holding to an orthodox biblical view, we wouldn't have to talk about this, but they're not. And so we have to explicitly bring clarity. There's that word again, bring clarity to the situation to say, this is who can be a leader in our church. And this is who cannot be a leader in our church. And, and we need to make it very clear. I, well, I think we have made it clear, even though people are trying to muddy the waters in here, but we have made it clear. Now we just have, to, like you said, it's in 2023 is all about the rubber meeting the road. Um, we've made it clear that this is who can and cannot be a leader in our denomination. Now, our, what are we going to do about that? Yeah, yeah, that that's exactly what we're what we're having to deal with right now. And uh, yeah, what what you just said, I just I echo everything you just said uh, about that. It is it is the fight that has come to us. I think this is part of what's meant by always reforming, right? It's it's being willing to address the things that come our way. If we have to make adjustments, you know, if we we if, if there's something we understood incorrectly, we need to be willing to be teachable and 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 coachable and and moldable by the word of God and by our confessions. But you know, the problems we face aren't the problems that people faced a hundred years ago or two hundred years ago. There are some same things, obviously, but there's different emphases, even if the tactics themselves don't change all that much. There's different areas on the battlefield that get the the force of attack. And we have to be willing to address those things. And that means sometimes you have to make firm statements on things that people 50 years ago never would have had to make firm statements on because they didn't have to deal. It wasn't even a, an issue. No one was pushing in that area. No one was attacking in that area. Yeah. Yeah. Just uh, kind of, as you were talking about that, this whole idea, we've talked a lot about this, obviously we're talking about reformation on the messy reformation. Um, but this idea of, you know, 
uh, reformed and, and always reforming. And, and uh, you know, we talk, we always try to emphasize according to God's word. But one of the things that just hit me as you were talking is if you go back and you, you look at the book of the books of Kings and the books of Chronicles, and you see that, you know, the good Kings and the bad Kings and the, you know, the, there are the good Kings that, that were reformers. Um, what were they doing when they reformed? They were not creating anything new. They were, they were coming into, they were all of a sudden coming, they're coming into their kingship and realizing that the temple and God's people had just come, been a shambles and they were rebuilding, but they were not building anything new. Nothing was new. They were just rebuilding and reinstituting what had fallen to pieces from misuse over the years. And so it's, again, this is picture that like, I think the CRC in order, like, I think we're probably, well, whatever, we're at this point where like, we're kind of in a shambles right now from disuse. Like the temple has fallen apart. Like we're probably, (laughs) we're probably about to the point not quite this bad, but to the point where Josiah, where like somebody's digging around and they're like, Hey, we found this dusty book. Should we read this thing or not? And then they read it and they're like, we're not doing any of this stuff. We need to make some changes, right? We're not that bad, but, but we're at, we need to start looking at God's word and saying, how does he want us to live as his people? How does he want us to operate? And then start rebuilding, but that not building anything new, restoring the the kind of the foundations of who we are. Um, that's really yeah. what reformation is. Yeah. And that, and that's getting at exactly what I, you know, that's, that's exactly where my heart is in this because I do view this as, I mean, yes, it's an issue of, of human sexuality. Obviously we're having that conversation, but underneath that is what's really the, the most vital thing and where we really are, I think. And it's, it's on the authority of God's word. And that touches, that touches everything. I mean, I, I have, I have a theory, maybe it's more a hypothesis that, um, you know, we talk about in our culture, you know, the gospel, the challenges to the gospel and this and that, and the gospel has kind of been lost. People don't go to church like they used to. And, and, and that I, I have a theory that behind that, um, and again, this just sticks with the word of God not being out there and and preached and communicated and all of that, that maybe the issue isn't as much that the good news has been, uh, is vacant. It is. But underneath that, I think, is that the bad news is vacant. I mean, we have a whole culture that everyone thinks that everyone is okay. And, and the idea that there is real sin and not just acts of sin, but a sinful condition that those acts of sin flow out of, right? Mm-hmm. The idea that the idea that I uh, surely I was sinful from birth, sinful from my mother's womb, that's a foreign concept. That's a foreign idea in our culture. Uh, people just don't resonate with, with that at all. But the thing is about the thing about the good news is it only makes sense if you understand the context of the bad news. And I feel like in our in our current controversy, there's a real reluctance to give attention to the bad news, even if we even if we want to hold and you know and kind of give a nod of assent to our doctrine of total depravity, the reality of that bad news and how it affects people's lives to the core and how we all stand in need of a savior. You know, no problem, no need for a solution. But yeah. we're dealing with the manifestation of the problem of fallen humanity of, of sin in all of our lives. And, and 
I feel like that's part of this discussion that just kind of underlies it, it, it all that, that it's the truth of what apart from Christ, we all face is, is kind of maybe not intentionally, but it's just kind of, it's kind of like in our culture where it's not really there. It's not part of the discussion. And so emphasis is maybe on relationship rather than the need for redemption or deliverance. And, and the seriousness of sin isn't, isn't taken into consideration because on one level, apart from some sort of a theological understanding of things, I would be able to do nothing but scratch my head over how you can read this from the word of God and come to any other conclusion about human sexuality than the ones that you and I would come to, you know, yeah. and, and along with Willie and, and others, it's just so obvious, but, but we're dealing with something deeper than that. We're dealing with something that, that hits on heart level, soul level, authority of the word of God level. Um, and, and that's why it's, it's, it's all the more serious because of that. Yeah. And I think we don't talk about the problem very much because it's not quote unquote winsome mm-hmm. because people don't like it. Right. And, uh, yeah. you know, I was thinking, um, I've been thinking a lot about, um, second Corinthians, um, and second Corinthians seven, Paul says, you know, when I first sent you my harsh letter, I was a little, you know, I was a little like, uh, what was, I forget. Yeah, anyways, he, he said, he, I know I grieved you and I was maybe a little like sad that I grieved you by my letter. Like I kind of was like, ah, maybe I shouldn't have grieved you. But then he said, but I'm not anymore because I, you, you, you received a godly grief from this letter. You, you actually, you felt sad about your sin. You were convicted of your sin and a godly grief leads to repentance, which leads to salvation and life. And he said, so now I don't feel bad that I made you feel bad. <laughs> like, because, because now that led you to life in eternal life. But he also, on the other side, he says, there is a worldly grief and that leads toward death. Um, and so we don't ever want to promote this kind of worldly grief, but we've really, I think in the church in general, we really have this kind of gut reaction to making anybody feel bad. We're like, we can't make anybody feel bad. We just like, we want to like talk about sin a little bit and then talk about how great salvation is after that, which is not really, um, that's not really how the church has operated throughout history. Um, I've told people, you know, go read David Brainerd's journals about the ministry that he did amongst the native Americans in new England. Like they would preach and, and I'm not going to say I'm necessarily going to follow his pattern, but I just think it's an eye opener to us. Like he would preach about sin and they would be weeping and wailing over their sin for days. I mean, it wasn't like five minutes. And then he was like, don't, 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 don't feel bad. Don't feel bad. No, it was like, they were weeping and wailing over their sin for like two, three days and then they would come to him and say, I need something. I need relief from this. How, what do I do to get rid of this pain? And he would say, let me tell you about the gospel. And, uh, and like, we just don't do that. And I've been rebuked a couple of times where like we had a one youth group meeting where I was talking about the heavy, that just the weight of sin and, uh, and a few students just were weeping about the weight of their sin. And a couple leaders like you, you shouldn't have made them feel that bad. And I'm like, it's okay. It's okay to feel that weight um, because that that's what makes 
salvation, like we didn't just leave them there forever and be like, well, you're, <laughs> you're in trouble, right? Yeah. Like we, we, we showed them the path toward the gospel, but like, but it's okay to just be there for a little bit and, and, uh, and just recognize like, this is, this is bad. Yeah. Yeah. And, and frankly, I mean, the good news, its own name being good anticipates that it's a response to something else. Bad yeah. news, right. And, and not everyone knows that we live in a culture that's very similar. I would say just kind of um, just by way of comparison to the culture that Paul been to in the nations, which that apart from, you know, talking to, Jews living in Israel or something who had the benefit of the Hebrew scriptures and, and all of that deposit of the knowledge of from the scriptures, not when you get out into the Gentile world. And so he's wandering around Athens and looking at all these statues of the gods and all that. And he starts to talk to them about how religious they are. And our culture is religious. It, the, the idea that is, you know, just the kind of neutral theistic culture, it is not. It is highly religiously charged. Um, they're just different kinds of gods. And, uh, but Paul goes, starts talking to them about this and, and he starts to lay a foundation for them that they didn't have. He starts to talk to them and, and talk to them really about the bad news. He even takes it to judgment, right? He, he says that God has appointed a time of judgment by this man. And, you know, people think, well, he took them to the resurrection and that's where he lost them. Well, he went back to the resurrection saying that God proved that this man is going to be the judge. It was proved by his resurrection. But Paul takes them to judgment, which means he takes them to the reality of sin. Mm -hmm. And that's something that has largely been lost in our culture, I think. There's just no sense of the bad news. I think that's probably... You know, the church has ownership in that because it's the church who should have been making sure that the whole council of the word of God is out there and known. Um, and now maybe those chickens are coming home to roost, but it's part of our reality that we have to deal with. And and the idea that you cannot confront people with sin and at the same time love them is just a false dichotomy that, again, it's another premise we just need to outright reject. I don't even accept your premise. I'm not going to give it the time of day because those two things aren't mutually exclusive. Yeah, 100%. And yeah, just the, uh, I remember being struck the other day as I was reading through the Gospels um, where it described John the Baptist preaching the good news. And most people don't think of that. They just, he just preached repentance, repentance, repentance. But the, they said that the message John the Baptist preached and he was yelling at people say like, flee because you're like the, the ax is at the tree, you know, like get your, you need to repent. And that was good news. Yep. Uh, this, this may be a tangent, um, but I'll just, since we're having this conversation, have you ever seen the interview with, you know, who Penn and Teller are? Mm-hmm. So yes. I, I, I forget which one is the one who talks and which one is the one who doesn't. Penn talks. Is that right? I think it's Penn. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Okay. So he's, he's talking, uh, I think it was actually not an interview. He, he just recorded a video of himself talking about a guy who came up to him after one of his shows and, and gave him a Bible. Have you seen that? Yeah. Yeah. And, he, and his conclusion at the end of it, he said, you know, of course I don't agree with this guy, but he was really genuine and really kind and, and really, really believes in a hell and all that. And, and then he, this, this self um, confessed atheist says, he kind of pontificates and he says, how much do you have to hate someone who really believe there's a hell, you know, and consequences to sin and not tell them? 
Yeah. So like even he is seeing that love and warning, you know, love and confrontation with sin and the reality of judgment are not mutually exclusive. Yeah, 100%. Anything we love, truly, we will fight for. Yep. That's just the reality of it. If you're not willing to fight for anything, you don't actually love anything. And at times discipline, if that's the nature of the relationship. 100%. Yeah, well, we're running to the end of our interview here. And so I, we always want to give uh, those we interview kind of a final word. We've got pastors and church leaders and and uh, lay people who listen to this podcast. Uh, what kind of final words do you want to want to give them as we wrap up? I would just say, just keeping it simple um, and to reiterate, stay with it. Don't, don't get weary, endure, right? Uh, hand to the plow and don't look back. You know, Christ died for his church. Surely it's worth us fighting for as his people. You know, it's, it can get exhausting. It can get frustrating. Um, but it's worth fighting for, not because it's the CRC. It's worth fighting for because it's part of Christ's bride. That's all we have for this week. Stay tuned next week to hear our conversation with Anthony Seitzma. But until then, don't forget this is Christ Church, and he bought it with his blood. And we've been warned that wolves will come in trying to destroy the flock. So keep a close watch on your life and on your doctrine. Preach the word in season and out of season and keep fighting the good fight in this messy reformation.